0: And chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we'll go through to the end of verse 6. 1 John chapter 4. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. The North American church is in crisis. And it's a crisis of belief, a crisis of truth. It's a crisis of having the right knowledge. The Barna Group does uh, surveys every year just tracking where the North American church is. And uh, their last surveys caused a lot of consternation uh, amongst uh, church circles. And so in this survey, they surveyed to uh, see if uh, American Christians uh, have a biblical worldview. And uh, your worldview is your beliefs, the convictions, the overall perspective which you see and interpret life and the world. It's how you look at and explain life. It's how you think. And so it's out of your worldview that your actions flow. And so of those, we're going to narrow the survey down because they did it of all people who say they're Christians, but of the group who say they're born again Christians, they found that only 19% had a biblical worldview, not very big. Only 46% believed in absolute moral truth, which means that 54% said that there isn't absolute moral truth. Which the moment that you say that there isn't absolute moral truth, you've just taken away the authority of the Bible. The Bible's moral truth, yes. And uh, the word absolute is it's true in all things. And so 54% rejected that. 79% believe that the Bible's accurate in all of its principles it teaches. Twenty-one percent said they don't believe it's accurate in all its principles. But the problem with that is of the 79, we'd say, well, that's 79%. That's pretty good. They believe in all its accurate, it's accurate in its principles. But that doesn't mean that they believe it's accurate in everything in the Bible. Just in what it's trying to get across. So, for example, you could say that creation is not a true story, but it's trying to teach us a principle. And the principle is accurate. So there's a huge problem there also. Only 40% believe that Satan is real. 47% reject that you can earn your salvation through your deeds. So that meant that 53% believe that you could earn your salvation through your deeds. If you're good enough, they believed you could get to heaven. If you believe that you're not even born again because you do not understand salvation. 62% said they believe that Jesus is sinless. And so that means that 38% believe that Jesus sinned, which again makes him just a mere human. And how can a sinner die on the cross for your sins? He'd have to die for his own sins and that'd be it. 93% 93% believed that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who still rules today. But still, there were 7% of those who claimed to be born again who do not believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, who rules this universe. And it was found that the younger the person being surveyed, the less likely they were to have a biblical worldview. In fact, the youngest of the adults rarely possessed a biblical worldview. And yet, out of all of that, only 19% would hold to all of those truths amongst those who say they're born again. But the picture is even more grim amongst pastors because pastors are responsible to teach a biblical worldview, but it was found that only 41% of pastors held to all of those. And that's the senior pastors. When it comes to teaching pastors in churches, only 13% of them held to all of them. When it comes to children and youth pastors, only 12% held to all of them. And when it came to executive pastors, only 4% of executive pastors held to all of them. It was found that pastors tend to blend ideas from a variety of worldviews. And George Barna, after the survey, he made the comment, he says, the culture is influencing the church more than the Christian churches are influencing our culture. When Christians do not hold to the right beliefs, the church ends up in crisis. It actually means that there's a lot of people who claim to be born again. They're not really born again because they do not believe certain key beliefs, which lead to salvation. So we're in, you know, we're in a crisis of truth. But actually, the church has always faced a crisis of truth, even the first century church faced a crisis of truth. And that's what John is addressing here, is that first century crisis. Uh, They didn't know what to believe, so many of them. Because the first century was a mix of Western and Eastern religions. They had many gods to worship, both Roman and Greek. They had mystery religions, which promised them uh, secret knowledge. Somewhere in the church, we're teaching dualism, and and what dualism is, is they were saying the body all matter. Anything that's created, that's physical, is evil. But the spirit is good. And so they taught that your body is evil, but your spirit is good. And they would take that two different directions. Some groups took it, well, my body is evil, my spirit is good. Uh, Well, then it doesn't matter what I do. I can go out and sin and do whatever I want with my body, because it doesn't affect my spirit. It's good. Others took it the opposite direction, and while my body is evil, my spirit is good, so now I need to bring everything in line, so they deny their body everything. And some of them go out and live in the deserts and live very austere lives. And so they went all sorts of different directions, but behind much of it was they were teaching that light is knowledge, you have fellowship with God through knowledge, and we have secret knowledge that brings you into fellowship with God. And if you just follow our knowledge, you'll be okay. They denied that Jesus was God who became flesh. They denied the need of of Christ for salvation, And so thus they and their followers were living on godly lives, claiming to walk in the light, and yet they were walking in darkness. They claimed to find salvation through their knowledge, their secret knowledge. And many of the early Christians were being drawn into this. And they were being drawn away from the truth. And so it was a battle for the minds. And that's a big purpose of why John is writing this book. Because Satan knows what you believe impacts your behavior, it impacts your life. And so John is addressing that. Because if you're going to have fellowship with God, you do have to believe certain things. You have to come and accept certain things. For example, to say, as as some of those teachers were saying, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Or to say the opposite, that Jesus in the flesh wasn't God then no, you cannot believe that and be born again. And you do not have fellowship with God, no matter how much you claim it. So John uh, begins the book. He's trying to teach correct doctrine right from the beginning of the book. He's trying to teach that Jesus is the word of life. Jesus is the eternal life. He is the life that was with the Father from eternity past, forever forever. And he did take on flesh and he did become one of us. This is the Jesus that we proclaim, he's saying. There is no other. This is the truth that we must accept if we're going to be in fellowship and walking with God. And so he uses certain words over and over message, truth, commands, word, obedience. Jesus is the word of life who gives us life, who's to be obeyed. He is the truth, he is the word from the beginning. And so in chapter 4 here, as I read from 1 to 6, he tells us to test the teachers. And we should always be testing our teachers. Because some of them may be false teachers. And how are we to test them? We're to test them against the revealed word of God. The message which he says has been from the beginning And so John tells them to listen to the apostles. He says in verse 6, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And so John has an answer to this crisis of truth. It's very simple. Number one, know the truth, know the right beliefs. You need to know what is truth. If you don't, you're easy prey when falsehood comes along. It's knowing the right truth that guards you. Now John says we are from God and whoever listens to God listens to us. So who's the we? Who's the us he's referring to here? Because we're to listen to this we, this us. Who are they? Well, he begins the book by telling us who they are. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Complete. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. He keeps using that word we over and over there. Who's the we? The we is the group of people who saw Jesus in the flesh. They walked with him. They touched him. They listened to him. They spent the time. They were taught by him. They got the message directly from Jesus. Who are those? It's the disciples, the apostles. And so John is saying that if you want to test what is true and what is not, you test it according to what we, the apostles, are teaching. Because they got it directly from Jesus. You're a true teacher if it lines up with that. You're a false teacher if it doesn't line up with that. And so now you know what truth to believe. It has to be the truth that's taught by the apostles. And then John is really saying, now hold to the truth. Hold to these right beliefs. The early church had started well, but the false teachers were introducing lies and heresies and leading them away from truth. And so really he's saying, don't change things up. Don't seek new knowledge that's not revealed in scriptures. When someone comes along to you and says, you know, I have an insight into scripture that no one has ever seen before. Be very, very careful with that. The North American church is in crisis today because the majority of Christians do not really know the truth. They know bits and pieces and they have mixed that bits and pieces with the world. And so the result is they create their own reality and they create a God who fits that reality. God becomes a God of their own making and they're easily led astray. And so John is telling us here, he says, Christians in fellowship with God, they know the truth as taught by the apostles. And secondly, they hold to the truth as taught by the apostles. That's necessary for being in fellowship with God. So, why is this important? Because you are what you believe. So, I want to go away from John for a while here and just show how this works. Here's how it works: we all begin with an acceptance of a core reality or truth. You can have many of them. And maybe some experience has happened to you, something that was taught to you. It can be real or imagined, it can be truth or a lie. But the point is, you've accepted it as a truth. You've accepted it as being real. And whatever you accept there at the core, in the end, determines your life. Because what happens when you accept something as truth in your life, you will now develop other beliefs around that truth. And you think they're true also. Out of those beliefs, we now will form our values. What we think is good. What we think is important. And our values will shape our behaviors. So let me illustrate how this works from real life. True story. Many years ago, a farmer told me this story from his early years. And back then farming was done by horses and he had a horse that uh, at a certain gate would always balk. And one day he was on a stone boat, a stone boat is just two logs with boards across it and he was standing on there and he was driving this horse. And the horse came up to that gate and it just balked there and it would not go through and he couldn't make it go through and finally out of patience and growing angry because this had happened many times, suddenly he had a brilliant idea. It was almost lunchtime. And he knew that his wife would have a pot of potatoes boiling on the stove. And so he put a glove on and he went and grabbed a hot potato and he went back to the horse. And he lifted the horse's tail and he shoved the hot potato under the tail. And of course the horse's instinctive reaction is just to clamp its tail down on the potato. And he said it was a wild ride. That horse bolted. It was a runaway. There was no controlling or stopping that horse. Now he had a different problem. Every time he came up to that gate driving that horse, that horse would just suddenly just run through it or race through that gate. And he said, I never could break that horse of racing through that gate. It always ran. So let's chart this poor horse's. It's funny, but you have to feel for the horse. So let's chart his thinking. Reality. It really happened. A hot potato was put under my tail when I balked at this gate. And so the horse formed beliefs around that reality. And so my belief that is what is true is that every time I balk at this gate, a hot potato will be put under my tail. And so I've formed some values out of that. And what I think is good and what is important, because that was so painful, I value comfort now. I value never experiencing a hot potato under my tail again. And so what do I do now? How does that shape the behavior? If I run through this gate every time, I'll never have a hot potato under my tail. Therefore, I'll always run through this gate. Now, did the horse consciously think it through in this way? Of course not. Yet the process did work its way out through its thinking and behavior. And this is a process which we all do. The reality that you accept as a core truth determines your life. So let's go back through it again. What is real? What is true? Something that we accept as a core reality or belief? It often begins in some kind of experience. Again, it may not be true reality. It may not be truth. It may be a lie that you accept. But the point is, you've accepted it as reality. You think it's truth. So again, true story. Let's call this man Peter, not his real name. Peter grew up with an abusive father and mother. Not abusive in the physical sense where they would beat him, but abusive mentally, Peter could never do anything to satisfy his father. It was never enough. It was never good enough. He never heard his father praise him. He only heard his father berate him, put him down, be critical of him. His father always let him know, son, I'm disappointed in you. That's what he heard from a little child on. His father would tell him that he is worthless and no good. Add to this, he did not experience a mother's love. His mother made sure that he knew that he wasn't worth loving, and she would tell him that. You're not worth loving. And Peter believed it. He accepted his worthlessness as a reality, as a truth about himself. And this became a core truth reality in his life, even though it was a lie. So moving on, what you accept as a core truth in your life will create further beliefs. And so now Peter, having accepted this as his reality that he was worthless, he formed beliefs around himself and his world. And I would hear him say these comments, I am worthless, therefore, and then he would finish the sentence with something like, I can do nothing good. I'm worthless, therefore people see me as a failure. I'm worthless, people look down on me. I'm worthless, and I can't stand up for myself. And because he thought of them himself that way, people did take advantage of him. Now, the reality was that Peter was a kind, faithful, generous man. But he couldn't see that about himself. Because he had accepted the value, the truth, he accepted the truth of the inner core, I'm worthless. And he developed the beliefs. All his beliefs were centered around that core reality. So out of those beliefs now, he formed values, what he thought was good. And usually the good that we form, the values, are something we want. And so Peter formed the value of peace. I just want peace at all costs. I just want to be left alone. Just leave my miserable self in peace. And out of that came behaviors. For Peter was to appease To never confront someone, to always say you forgive, whether you forgive or not, but it was to have just peace. Peter decided that what was good was to protect those who abused him, don't let their real character become known, because after all, somehow he was at fault. And if he allowed their character to become known, he wouldn't have peace. His wife at home was very abusive, but in public she was super nice. She was careful to maintain the image she wanted in church, and yet she carried on multiple multiple affairs, often several at once. And so what was good to Peter was to protect her reputation, simply because he wanted peace. He never opened up and talked about what he had suffered until years after her death. For him, it was good to try to appease those who abused him, His wife constantly took her anger out on him and he would do all he could to appease her. She was unfaithful over and over and he always forgave and appeased her. After all, it was only what he deserved, what he thought. His adult children treated him horribly and he appeased them by giving them money over and over, even to the point that he lived in poverty because of it. So what's his value? Peace. Just leave me in my miserable existence His behavior matched the core value. See how it works? Well, let's leave Peter and let's come a little closer to home and illustrate in a different way. So let's say you sitting here this morning and the core value at your heart is this world is all that there is and it's all I have. And we call such a person a naturalist when they believe this world is all I have, all there is. Now, you might be saying, well, that's not me. Well, you know, this is a core value that many Christians have. And how could a Christian have such a belief? Uh, Not many of us would be willing to admit that we're a naturalist, but we live like a naturalist. We live as though this world is all we have. In our heads, we know that we're eternal, we know this world is temporary, we know that we ought to live for eternity. But in our hearts, the reality is that this world is the most important thing in our lives. And so many Christians, they approach heaven and salvation as an escape from hell. But it doesn't touch this life for them. They don't want to go to hell, so they're a Christian. But their hope is still in this world. And so if that's their core value then what is true, the beliefs that I form around this core value is, while life is short, I need to experience as much as I can, I need to complete my bucket list. Everything that's in there that I want to experience during this life. And then out of that we form values, the values of safety and comfort and pleasure. I value getting as much as I can out of this life because it's all I have. And then comes the behavior that comes out of those values. Because safety and comfort and pleasure are my values, I pray all the time for safety, comfort, and successes. All you have to do is walk into a prayer meeting, and you know within minutes what is their core value in their life. If all the prayers focus around safety, comfort, and pleasure, or does it focus around God's glory? And so because I have the perspective that what this world offers is safety, comfort, and pleasure, I'm going to build a house that's going to take me years to pay off because this world is all I have. I'm going to own all the toys that I can. I'm going to make sure I take all the vacations I can. I'm going to wear the right clothes. I'm going to fulfill my bucket world, and on it goes because this world is what I have. I'm simply living out that core truth that I accepted at the beginning. The result is that they live for themselves and they do not store up treasures in heaven. They do not do the good works which Christ has prepared for them to do. They do not make the eternal difference in this world that God has called them to make. They're not generous with their money with missions because they've spent it on themselves. And if God calls them to missions, well, I can't go because that's not comfortable. That's inconvenient. It's not safe. It doesn't fulfill my values. And so they claim to be a Christ follower, but the reality is that at the center, of their worldview is one more influenced by culture than the Bible. So let's switch it up and look at the opposite worldview, a biblical one. God is everything supreme, and he's building an eternal kingdom, and I'm a part of that. Let's put that there that as the truth at the center in your life. So now the beliefs that I form around this is I have a part. The role God has chosen for me to play in building his kingdom is vitally important. And so what are the values that I form out of that belief? Is my values that I will live for his glory. I will fulfill the destiny which God wants me to fulfill in his kingdom, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it denies me the things that I want. And so I'm going to live in obedience to what he wants me to do to build his kingdom. And so that leads into the behavior. I behave in such a way that the ultimate thing is God's glory through my life. Thus, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to pray for boldness. I'm going to give to missions. I'm going to go if God calls me. My prayers reflect not safety, comfort, and pleasure, but God's glory in these situations. One pastor illustrating it this way, he said, If you didn't pray for revival this week, you don't have a prayer problem. You have a worldview problem. If the sum of your prayers are for safety, comfort, and protection, you don't have a prayer problem. You have a worldview problem. It's vitally important what is the truth that you accept at the at the core, your heart. You can literally look at your behavior and trace your way backwards to the inward. And you'll discover the reality that you've accepted, the worldview out of which you're acting. Now, what John is telling us is God has revealed every truth that you need there for your core value. And he's telling us to go back to that and make them the core truths. Peter says a similar thing in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He has given everything you need for life and godliness, so let's put it in the context of what I'm talking about. He's given you every truth that you need to be there as a core truth, which will form your beliefs, which will determine your values, and result in your behaviors. You're not missing one thing. It's all there. It's available in his word. If you want it. But instead of pursuing truth as revealed by God, so many in John's day and in today, they're seeking truth from so many other sources. And James says the result of that kind of person is going to be a double-minded person, unstable. If you seek truth in any place other than God's truth. It brings an instability into your life. This is why you have so many scriptures just saying, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. I may fear your name. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's a wellspring of life. Jesus, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Where we have to go back to. Let me illustrate this from World War II. Sometimes the best way to catch is just stories. In World War II, the Germans knew that the Allies were going to be attacking. They would uh, try to invade uh, Europe. The problem was they didn't know where, and they knew they had to determine where. If they could determine with certainty where they could fortify. They could put the majority of their forces there. And their problem was, while they had perhaps the world's best army, they were on the top of the game as far as technology, Uh, they had a coastline to defend all the way from Norway through France. And it was too much. To try to defend that entire coastline would just spread them way too thin. And so they had to determine where the Allies were going to attack Now, knowing this, the Allies on the other side, they set up an elaborate scheme of deception. They set up whole army divisions that were fake, tanks that were simply balloons, dummy soldiers. They set up an elaborate system of information being exchanged by radio, uh, all in code, but they allowed the Germans to crack the code, so the Germans were listening in uh, on all the planning. They set up a whole system of spies who infiltrated the German spy system, who allowed themselves to be recruited by the Germans, and the Germans thought they were loyal to them. Now these spies simply fed all this information that the Allies wanted and fed it to the Germans, and the Germans thought they were getting truth. The Allies called this the Operation Fortitude, and uh, by the time the planning was done, the Germans thought they knew everything that there was to know about Operation Fortitude. Part of the deception was that the Allies were going to send an invasion uh, force to the beaches of Normandy, but it would be a fake invasion to draw the Germans off there, and the real invasion was going to come somewhere else. The Germans even uh, came convinced that they knew when this was going to happen. The Allies were so successful in planting this deception into the hearts, the minds of the Germans that the Germans had a, they accepted this as truth to live by. It was unshakable reality. So on the night of the invasion, the Germans were relaxed. The invasion wasn't going to happen yet. They knew that. And they knew where it was going to happen. So General Rommel, the night of the invasion, he went home to his wife's birthday party. General Dahlman went off to another location to conduct a war game practice to hold off the invasion where it was really going to happen. The other generals had left that day for other things. Hitler threw a party until 2 a.m., Finally got to bed at 3 a.m. During the night, uh, the German intelligence began to pick up information of a mass movement happening in the Allied forces. But they hesitated to wake up Hitler because they were so sure of the Allied plans. By 6 a.m., the Allies were attacking on the beaches of Normandy, and the Germans were quickly in trouble. And help was close, but they didn't send it because they needed to keep the help where they knew the real invasion was going to come. They knew that this was just a diversion, or so they thought. Hitler didn't wake up until 10 in the morning. By then it was really too late, but when the news came to Hitler, even he wasn't concerned. Because they knew that this was just a diversion and the real attack was coming somewhere else. And they were prepared for that. By the time they understood that they had been deceived, it was too late. And that's the picture of what Satan is trying to do in your life. He's trying to plant truths, realities into your heart as core truths and realities. And he's hoping by the time you wake up and understand, it's too late. He's brought destruction. And so my question is, where are you going for your core truths? Because they form your life. Now John says, Christians in fellowship know where to find the truth. And they hold to that truth. Peter says that his divine power through the scriptures has given everything we need for those core truths. You've been given the weapons you need to fight with. And so truth when you have accepted those lies within, when truth begins to replace those lies that are at the core of your being, you're on the path to freedom. And not until then. You know, I've heard so many Christians say, sit and pray, God, give me freedom. Freedom from some sin. And they want God just to work a miracle and you're just free of it. And God sometimes does that. But that's not the normal path for us. God is saying, the answer's already there. You need to go and discover the lie that you're believing and replace it with the truth. And when you know the truth, it'll set you free. The last time I talked to Peter, he was an old man, and he was just waiting to die. He wanted to die. Because he saw heaven as an escape from those inner realities which he had followed all his life and caused him so much suffering. His inner reality of worthlessness, it was a lie that he never conquered. He always believed it as truth. And he saw heaven as the escape. And that's sad. Because he didn't need to spend an entire life following a lie that he'd accepted as truth. For every reality that within that is a lie, there's a God-truth waiting to set you free. Christians in fellowship know the truth. And they hold to the truth. It will make all the difference for you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the truth that you've given us. There's nothing missing in your word. You've given everything we need to form the truth that's at the core of our being, to set us free, to help us to live successfully in the light of eternity, to help us to live a life that brings you glory. I just pray that you'd give each one of us here this morning an understanding of this process in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name.